Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 32, Insulin Resistance and Women's Reproductive Health. It's estimated that up to 12% of women in the United States are affected by fertility problems directly caused by insulin resistance. Join Dr. Bickman, the Insulin IQ team, and our special guest, Dr. Steve Coles, OBGYN, for a conversation on how insulin control is giving women hope to have the family they want. When it comes to fertility, I appreciate the humor to be found in a bunch of fellows um, and engaging in this topic uh, with, with Carly. Uh, but nevertheless, science is science. And so that's no respecter of persons. So I, I feel comfortable in this topic. Um, I'm thrilled to have Steve here. Steve, thanks for joining us. Because one of the things that worries me sometimes in speaking about these obviously clinical problems is that I, I can only speak to what's been published in the peer-reviewed literature. And while that's nice and it has some credibility, and utility, there's always just that next step that we can't often take, which is into the clinic. What is it actually like with uh, being the boots on the ground, so to speak? Uh, so I'm thrilled to have your input here and, and we'll um, uh, gladly uh, to turn some time over to you in just a moment. And just to sort of tee things up, it might seem strange to the uninitiated or the un uninformed that we would be talking about polycystic ovary syndrome at all in what is ostensibly the metabolic classroom. After all, this isn't the infertility classroom. It's not the pregnancy classroom or childbearing classroom. It's the metabolic classroom. But 
lest the name polycystic ovary syndrome muddy the water, this is a metabolic problem. It is the most common infertil uh, infertility in women. And it's no coincidence that insulin resistance happens to be the single most common problem full stop. These two are intimately connected. And it's just a further reflection of how relevant insulin is throughout the body. Literally every single cell of the body responds to insulin in some way. And the ovaries are no different. And just as there are so many different types of cells, it's no surprise that insulin does different things at different cells. And what it does at the ovaries is totally different than what it does to others, even what it does within specific cells of the ovaries, like the theca cells, which will be a cell of focus for us today. Now, Steve, to get things um, going with this metabolic classroom discussion, can you share with us what is the role of, of the estrogens, that small little family of the prototypical female sex hormones in female fertility? Yeah, the, you know, female fertility really relies a lot on the female sex hormones, particularly FSH and LH, which is follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And those come from the hypothalamus uh, to the pituitary, then down to the ovary. And that's kind of an axis that's really important in reproductive health. Uh, and all of those are relevant uh, in this situation and in, in, in every woman. And, and uh, really that FSH and LH goes to the ovary uh, and then uh, el elicits a response of releasing estrogen or uh, progesterone. Uh, and those are, are related, the androgens, the testosterone, progesterone, and, and estrogen are related and they, they function in different areas in the body differently, but the ovary in particular releases uh, a, a large amount of estrogen and also the a large amount of the testosterone in the female body as well. So uh, in fact, I, you brought in some other characters that I didn't. So you went one step up in this hypothalamic um, gonadal axis, um, so-called, but so we have LH, luteinizing hormone, and you mentioned that, and I'm remembering from school days, um, this, this, chart of, of the female ovulatory cycle, where you see these big peaks of some characters at play. And so we have this LH surge, right? So the, the, the pituitary just floods the body with luteinizing hormone. And then from what I understand, that will then lead the ovaries, specifically the theca cells, which is where insulin will come into play, to, that will drive this big estrogen spike, right? And then is, is that right so far, Steve? Yeah, typically, uh, typically as a kind of a basic rule, the FSH uh, especially creates an estrogen rise, and then um, the LH will then uh, elicit progesterone to start to rise, and then that progesterone either stays high, progesterone meaning pro-gestation uh, or uh, pro-pregnancy, uh, that will then either stay high if a, if a woman is pregnant and creates a, uh, of, uh, the follicle turns into, uh, the, uh, the, the hormone secreting a portion of, of the pregnancy, mm -hmm. or if that doesn't happen and the pr person doesn't get pregnant, then that progesterone drops as well. So if they kind of work in tandem, but also in, in a bit of a, a different form, each one. Yeah. So Steve, throughout the month, um, as the woman is 
preparing or, or gearing up to actually ovulate. And ovulation, that one specific word is a specific event, right? The word ovulation refers to one actual emission or, or the ovary actually releasing the egg. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So the, but, but, but prior to that preparation, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So prior to that actual ovulation, there are multiple potential eggs or follicles developing. Is that right? In either in one or both ovaries. It's really a fascinating process in that some people think that, you know, the left ovary ovulates, then it's the right's turn, then it's yeah. the left's turn. And that's not actually how it works. The, the body with this FSH, FSH is follicle stimulating hormone. And that creates follicles to uh, these eggs that are stored at birth. And even before birth at gestation, a, wo a woman will create all the eggs within her body. And those will be then activated, a few of them will be activated until one dominant follicle will kind of take over hormonally and become the, uh, the ovulatory follicle uh, stimulated by that FSH initially. And then uh, that ovulation triggered by that LH surge will then release that ovary where the fallopian tubes will be able to go and, and or release mm -hmm. the egg, I should say, and the fallopian tube can then get that egg, bring it into the uterus and the sperm can meet with that. And then it can implant within the uterus to, uh, to cause a pregnancy. So Steve, how does insulin mess it up? So the process you just described was the normal physiological process of ovulation. How do things get pathophysiological or how do things go wrong when insulin suddenly wants to join the party? It's like this raucous, like when Rich comes to a party, things were so nice and tidy. And then, oh boy, there goes the neighborhood. I mean, that's kind of what insulin is doing. There's a nice, neat party. I, I often, I refer to female fertility as just an orchestra and male fertility as a barbershop quartet in its sort of simplicity. And then this orchestra, I just imagine sort of insulin coming into this grand concert hall and then just taking out this obnoxious bugle and, you know, blaring, messing it up. So how, if, if insulin is, you know, what the bugle obnoxiously is to this well-balanced um, orchestra, what is insulin then to, to female uh, fertility? And we know, uh, lest anyone think I'm throwing insulin under the bus completely, you have to have insulin for fertility. You have to have insulin for lactation. Of course, as happens in so many of these diseases, the problem really comes when there's just too much. So when we have too much insulin, how does it come barreling into this well-orchestrated fertility cycle and mess it all up? That's a great question. And, and it, particularly in the situation of PCOS, which is that polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a bit of a, of a strange way of, of naming it. When, when in medicine, when you have the word syndrome, it, to me, it basically, that means is we don't totally understand what this yeah, it's is. It's a cop out. Yeah, it is a cop out. We don't, we don't really metabolic syndrome. I think we're still uh, understanding that same thing with polycystic ovary syndrome. It's a, and it's a syndrome that has three uh, main things, main categories that, that it has to have. It has to have oligomenorrhea, which is, um, which means uh, more distant or longer menstruation meaning people don't have normal, regular periods. So that's one thing it could have in it. Uh, another thing is uh, hyperandrogenism. So that means high testosterone or testosterone-like substances where people have clinically elevated testosterone. And then, um, and then it has 
all these cysts on the ovary, other kind of more uh, associations with that uh, are also um, this insulin resistance and metabolic disease that is part of it. So in PCOS, the metabolic portion of it is not the actual diagnostic criteria that we use, but we inevitably see it. And, and I think in all things like syndromes, you know, we have these cutoffs of this is the disease, but in reality, I think there's a spectrum of disease where um, just like insulin resistance, uh, when you have diabetes, you have diabetes, but that doesn't mean that uh, there isn't a whole spectrum before diabetes with insulin resistance that's clinically significant. I think the same thing is relevant with PCOS. Um, how does PCOS work is, is still up for debate. I think there's quite a bit of debate. There's definitely a genetic component that drives that, uh, but there's also a physiologic component, uh, particularly that has to do with obesity that can drive uh, that. Some people say that it has to have a two hit hypothesis where you have a genetic predisposition to have this insulin resistance, to have uh, anovulatory or oligoovulatory, meaning low ovulation. Uh, and then on top of that, one, if people hit a certain point uh, metabolically with obesity or other insulin resistance, then they kind of cross that tipping point. Um, but not all people are the same with PCOS. Some mm -hmm. people uh, are, are quite thin uh, and have PCOS. Some people are, have more fat in their body. And, and so they don't always follow the same mold, but there is a typical one. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I, that's great. So you've mentioned how uh, testosterone and androgens, the prototypical male sex hormones, but of course that's an oversimplification. All men have both androgens and estrogens. All women have both androgens and estrogens. Um, so each sex needs them. It's just in different levels. Women have, of course, much lower androgen and much higher estrogen relative to men. And that conversion, what many people uh, don't appreciate and aren't aware of, is that every estrogen was once an androgen, right? Is that an accurate? So every est all these prototypical sex hormone, female sex hormones, they all came from testosterone. It's just a matter of how much of it's getting converted. And that's, that's acted through this enzyme called aromatase. And ovaries are just doing this at a much, much higher level than the testes are. And so women are just converting more of this testosterone into the estrogens. <clears throat> and too much insulin actually starts to directly impact that, that enzyme, right? That's right. Well, yes. And, and particularly uh, with cholesterol synthesis and then distribution, it is a bit of a fluid relationship between estrogen, testosterone, estrone, estriol. Those are all different forms of estrogen. Some are more potent. Same thing with mm -hmm. testosterone and and, and so and dihydrotestosterone. And yep. so there's, uh, similarly, some are more potent than others, but that estradiol is the most potent form. And that is created directly from testosterone through aromatase. Yeah. And so then when insulin comes in, you know, charges into the party, um, and like, like some jerk from an eighties, like teen movie, you know, <clears throat> comes in and ruins the party estrogen. Then we have lower levels of estrogen production because of the high insulin. <clears throat> and now we have the, the, the woman who doesn't have enough estrogens to facilitate ovulation, right? Because estrogens, do they, do they play, they play a direct, you'd mentioned LH and FSH, 
But it, from what I understand, you also need an estrogen spike for ovulation. Is that right? Yeah, that's part of a, a normal ovulatory cycle is you have a rise in estrogen. Absolutely. So when insulin comes in, prevents this rise in estrogens, and now we have all these follicles in the ovaries that were developing, waiting to kind of get into the game for one to become the dominant ovulatory follicle. But in the absence of this estrogen spike, and certainly um, relevant to LH and FSH in a ratio there being altered as well, but we fail to have that one follicle become the dominant and then ovulatory follicle. And what does that do with all the remaining follicles? Because in the normal cycle, like you mentioned, we have the ovulatory follicle, the actual ovulation, and then that remnant follicle, and then all the other changes in the hormone milieu end up telling the follicles that had been growing, ready to get into the game, but never made the cut, to basically go away to get degraded. But in the absence of that one ovulation that insulin muddies up, what happens to all those other follicles that were ready to go and should have normally been told to degrade and back into nothing? Yeah, nor normally you would develop one uh, fall dominant follicle, and then that follicle ovulates and becomes what's called the corpus luteum, which then continues that pregnancy until it sees a, an HCG level, which is a pregnancy hormone, and that continues it. But these other follicles, they should go through apoptosis, which is a programmed cell death, they go away, they're supposed to go away and kind of dissolve the body dissolves them in. Similarly, that corpus luteum, which is the remnant of the sack of fluid that the that the egg was within, that will degrade and go away once that pregnancy is no longer there. And the uh, it's it's an interesting process that when you have when someone has PCOS, and they, and they don't have regular menstruation. The reason for that is because they don't ovulate regularly. And so um, that is the cause of oligomenorrhea is that they aren't releasing that egg and then setting off that cascade of hormones to either go towards pregnancy or towards having a period. And, and that can get actually particularly dangerous if you have... Um, buildup of, of the uterine lining, getting ready to get a pregnancy. And then you don't get, people don't get pregnant, but that lining never gets the signal to shed. And that can eventually become a more dangerous process. If it, if it doesn't shed and doesn't shed and doesn't shed, then those cells that are supposed to reproduce regularly can turn into even some precancer or cancer cells uh, and, and things like that. So that's something that we always are very cognizant of and it's because they don't have that ovulation and, and then that cascade of hormones telling a person to either get pregnant or to have a period uh, once they have that. Mm -hmm. And so one last um, discussion point then, then I want to briefly look through this study that we want to share with the, with the classroom. Um, that, that is the, the, the um, cysts themselves, the, the ovarian or the ovary cysts, so you'd mentioned that when one follicle ovulates, all the other follicles are um, eaten up or, or, or destroyed through apoptosis, but they are, in the absence of the ovulation, all the follicles just sort of stick around wondering what to do with themselves. Is that right? And they become the cysts 
that are the prototypical definition of PCOS. And, and also the unovulated dominant follicles can stick around as well. And so those ones, some of these ones that go through apoptosis really don't grow to be very large at all, but these mm. dominant ones do, but then they don't ovulate. And so some of them are un unovulated dominant follicles. We believe some of them are maybe other follicles that haven't gone through apoptosis. Excellent. Great. And is that, is that what is some of the discomfort the woman might feel just as the ovaries get more and more of these cysts. I will never forget in a pathology class as a PhD student at the medical school with the MD students, with your cohorts, looking at a picture of, a, of an ovary from a woman with PCOS. And normally what the ovary is, I mean, could certainly small fit in the, in the palm of a hand, right? I mean, quite, quite yeah. like the size of an egg, a little smaller. Smaller typically, yeah. And then I remember where this ovary the cystic ovary was almost, a, it was like the size of a kidney. <laughs> Some of them can get quite large. Uh, and that's just because the, the physics of a follicle taking up yep. more space and that stretch of the ovary can definitely, people can feel that. That's why sometimes people have a ruptured cyst and that can be painful. Often people go to the emergency room for something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, people can feel yep. also that ovulation even. Sometimes people can feel that. Great. Okay. Thanks so much. So this was, this was a wonderful preamble. And now let's get um, into the, this peer-reviewed article that we wanted to share that, that Steve pointed out. And, and I'll let him walk us through it in a moment. So this article was published in 2015, and it's entitled, and we'll put this up on the screen, Low Starch, Low Dairy Diet Results in Successful Treatment of Obesity and Comorbidities Linked to Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, or PCOS. So Steve, why don't you just kind of give us the lay of the land what was, who, who were the subjects involved in this study? What was the intervention? How long was it? And then what were the clinical outcomes that they measured? You know, this is, this is a study. It's not the end all be all study of PCOS, but it's actually near and dear to my heart because the uh, primary author, Dr. Jennifer Fye was my mentor in medical school. She's one of the reasons why I went into obstetrics and gynecology in the first place. She was actually a fertility doctor that treated my wife who has PCOS. Uh -huh. And so um, this is this is an article that I really like. And we saw her as fertility patients. And so, Steve, she, so does this mean are you a red raider? Is that the Texas Tech? <laughs> I, we got our guns up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Good. But she uh, but anyway, we she put us on the diet that she did in this uh, in this study, my wife would have been excluded from this study uh, for different reasons. But uh, we went on it and we were able to get pregnant. And so this is, a, this is near and dear to my heart. But I do like the study. I think it's, it's well designed. It's not perfect, of course. And what she did was they got 28 patients diagnosed with PCOS through Rotterdam cri criteria, which is having those three things like we talked about, oligomenorrhea, high testosterone, uh, or polycystic ovaries by definition, of having uh, 12 or more follicles in those ovaries on a baseline ultrasound. And that's called raw number criteria. You need two out of the three. So they, they diagnosed them with PCOS. They have it. And then they had to have the specific BMI uh, uh, to get into the study. They couldn't have other issues causing this um, PCOS-like symptom, including, you know, hyperandrogenism, high testosterone due to uh, Cushing's disease or other, di or other mm -hmm. problems like that. And they put them on a diet that was a very low carb and no dairy diet, uh, 
what they did was they would bring them in for a two hour session with a nutritionist and they would go through uh, their diet, tell them which foods they recommend eating, which ones they don't. They asked them not to change their exercise schedule or routine to, to try to isolate diet and, and not uh, get other factors that people are trying to bring in, although that, you know, that's always debatable. And then uh, they had them do this diet for eight weeks and they drew a bunch of labs and, and did some clinical things to see where are they at pre-intervention and where did it go post-intervention and, uh, and compared those labs to each other through statistical analysis to see if it was statistically significantly different uh, between the same person's labs eight weeks apart. Yeah, so a repeated measure, so pretty powerful. When you can compare a subject to it, herself, in this case, it gives you, I know as a, as a publishing scientist, it gives you a lot more statistical power um, to, to, you know, you powered the study enough to really find some conclusions. And so the, the clinical metrics that they used, it was a whole battery of them, I know, weight changes, BMI, waist circumference, um, glucose, fasting, and uh, glucose and insulin in a two-hour after, after an oral glucose tolerance test, which is very, very well done. HOMA, um, the HOMA score. So what were, um, what were some of the points you found, including uh, sex hormone changes with testosterone? Um, why don't you take us through what some of those findings were? Yeah, so- And I know there are so many that we don't- Yeah, so just highlight the ones you think were the most compelling. Well, there's a table, table two uh, in this article, if anybody can pull it up. And it's, it's pretty impressive. You look at the ones with a p-value less than 0.0001. That's a pretty convincing p-value. That means that it's most likely, assuredly not chance that caused this, but the actual some sort of intervention, something to do with the intervention that caused this change. At least uh, that's what we think. And so they, you look at weight in kilograms, there was a change of minus 8.6 on average with a standard deviation of 2.3. So 8.6 kilograms, that's huge. Uh, yeah, yeah. Almost, 20, went down almost 20 pounds, right? That's almost yeah. 20 pounds difference. That's, that's enormous. I, I, in eight weeks, people losing 20 pounds is, is pretty impressive no matter what you're doing. But this is, that was impressive. The fasting glucose to me is significant. And that's that the fasting glucose tells us without adding in diet, this is just at your baseline metabolism what, how, how much glucose do you have in your blood? And that went from 95, which is high. That's not a, that's not what I would call a normal fasting glucose to an average of 86, which is what I would call a more normal fasting glucose. So, uh, clearly brought them out of some metabolic disease The the glucose after 120 minutes, that two hour glucose that came down slightly the the fasting insulin i think is extremely relevant that came down mm -hmm. that means that insulin resistance by half. my mind when the down. insulin came down the insulin came down by half and steve just to emphasize further a point you made which is some of these p values which is the likelihood of um, a reflection of the likelihood that this finding is just coincidence or chance to to put this in perspective where the fasting insulin went down by half and that was a p-value that was less than 0 0.0001. To make something so-called statistically significant, it just has to be lower than 0 0.05. So this is orders of magnitude 
less likely to be just chance. In other words, orders of magnitude to be a genuinely relevant phenomenon in dropping your insulin by half in just a few weeks. With, and it wasn't even that extreme of a change. In fact, Steve, I think the carbohydrate content was like 90 grams of carbs per day. Does that sound about right? I mean, that, that's, that's certainly low carb compared to the average person, but that, that's, not, uh, that's pretty doable. I, you, I did the diet with my wife and, and it was, it, uh, it was the first experience I had with low carb and it was totally doable. It was super reasonable for us, but for these patients, clearly they didn't call them every week, making sure they were following strictly the diet. And now granted, these are fertility patients and those are the most motivated patients in the entire world because they have the ultimate motivation to get pregnant. And so these, these are patients that are going to do what you ask. And I, and clearly they did. Um, but, uh, that's impressive. If I had a drug that could do these things, if I had a medicine that I could give someone that would drop their weight by 20 pounds, improve their insulin resistance, I would put, and, and with no adverse effects, man, I would put every single patient on that drug. It just doesn't exist. That's not a drug that exists, but, but the diet exactly did that. And that's, that's pretty impressive statistics. Yeah, it is. It is. In fact, one of the, I'll just share one statement from the conclusion, and maybe this can serve as generally wrapping, concluding this portion of the metabolic classroom, but they stated, considering this dietary intervention allowed for ad libitum intake without calorie or carbohydrate counting or medications. I mean, that is so important and it makes these kinds of chain dietary changes so much more doable. These were not a bunch of gals who had to be tediously counting everything they were eating. They were given general broad instructions and told they could eat as much as they wanted. And as the, as the authors noted, it was ad libitum. That means freely. You can eat freely. In fact, I'll say that all again because I, I put in too much of a tangent there. But considering this dietary intervention allowed for ad libitum intake without calorie or carbohydrate counting or medications, these improvements are promising, especially since weight loss is difficult in a PCOS population. So, Steve, maybe to sum it up, it's not too much of a stretch to say, everything got better. It, that's what it looks like to me. Everything, at least the relevant uh, hormones and measurements that would have to do with this patient's health and reproductive health got better. And assuredly, some of these patients changed their ovulatory status where the metabolic disease was so significant, they were not ovulating. The interesting thing about PCOS is that when you can take away that metabolic component of obesity, particularly, and the insulin resistance, then the ovulation starts to come back. You take away one of those hits of that two hit Mm -hmm. theory, maybe have the genetics, but you take away the metabolism problem. And, and, and a lot of these patients are able to then get pregnant without medication, or at least less resistant to medication. And that that's what really motivates these patients. And that's what that's, really phenomenal. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. And that certainly motivates you as the physician. I would imagine nothing more gratifying than seeing the patient actually getting better. And it's not just writing a never ending prescription for new drugs. Steve, thanks. Thanks so much. This was great. Well, Jack, uh, I'll turn the time back to you to broaden this out. Great. Thanks, uh, Dr. Coles and, and Ben. We appreciate, uh, we appreciate the, the basis of our metabolic classroom uh, today. 
Carly, uh, Coach Carly and Coach Rich, do you have uh, questions for for uh, Ben and Steve to start off with? Um, maybe not a question per se, but just a few comments from from the side of coaching. Um, it's really fascinating. I'm thinking maybe we should put on our intake paperwork, what is the form of birth control you're using? Because typically you see when people think they're infertile, um, you know, I've, I've referred to this as kind of an anti-aging effect. When you go low carb, um, you know, I see often see women who were kind of in early menopause or whatever, they'll, they'll slide backwards and they'll go back into a period or women who haven't been fertile, who, you know, think that they don't have to worry about birth control, all of a sudden they're pregnant. And um, it's really kind of neat to see. And to me, it really speaks to the importance of insulin because, you know, we are so wisely made as human beings that if we don't live in good, um, healthy enough circumstances, our bodies can't have a baby. And that's for that baby's benefit so that it's not born into, you know, some unsurvivable, unsurvivable state or whatever. Um, and it's just so cool to see that as you correct your insulin issues, all of a sudden you can have a baby, you can make a baby. And I've seen it so many times where women who aren't fertile get fertile. I've seen women whose faces, shapes, changes, um, you know, they look like a, not just a smaller them, but they look like a different them. Um, as they control their insulin or, you know, the issues that women often have with hair on their chin or whatever completely go away and not have those issues after time. And it's just a really cool thing to watch women who um, have been so discouraged not being able to get pregnant all of a sudden their fertility. And it doesn't happen so perfectly with everybody. Like you said, Dr. Uh, Coles, um, sometimes you still have to use medication, but your chance of it working increases. Um, but we see so many women who have benefits. So it's a really cool thing to watch. I can't tell you how many babies I've delivered of women who said, my doctor told me I'd never get pregnant. I don't know who these doctors are that are saying people will never get pregnant, but don't believe them because <laughs> things can change. And, and I will deliver your baby if you know, it's just <laughs> I've done it so many times. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's wonderful. And also, if someone's not looking to get pregnant, also, you know, maybe not as anticipated. So I think contraception is a good idea yeah. for people going through this if they're wanting it. Yeah. Great. Any other questions? In fact, that should, that should be a little um, statement on like a condom package or, you know, if, <laughs> yeah. if you or your wife run a low-carb diet, you need this more than most. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We have a few questions coming in. Uh, let's take a couple of them just to, to kind of uh, kick off some other ideas from Molly on our website. And I think you might have touched on this already, Steve. Can insulin resistance cause very large ovarian cysts? I had a 16-centimeter uh, cyst removed along with my right ovary. I'm wondering if that's the link. Uh, typically not. Typically, it doesn't form that large of a cyst. Normally, that's something like a cyst adenoma or some other pathologic process to create something that large. Normally, the polycystic ovaries are, are quite small. There's just so many of them that they can make the overall ovary large, uh, but doesn't typically make a one single extremely large ovary. That's a different process. Okay. Hope that helps. Uh, from Tony, is there a way to be metabolically healthy even while taking birth control pills? Is there anything that can be done to improve 
hormone, hormonal health while taking the pill? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, I prescribe plenty of, of hormonal birth control pills. I don't think that they in and of themselves would make somebody unhealthy. I think, uh, that hormonal contraceptive pills can suppress some of these hormones, the FSH and LH that go to your ovary to tell you to have periods. Um, and they have benefits and they also sometimes have side effects that people don't like. But I think it's a, I think that's a, a also partly separate issue of metabolic health and uh, suppression of, of hormones. I think they can go hand in hand for sure. Okay. So oh. the answer is control your insulin, just like everybody else, right? Right. I don't think that, that taking pills would, would change the fact that all of us need you know, this, you know, whether you have an IUD or whatever, I think that's, I think that's separate. And also, we also need to control our insulin. Uh, from Kathy, some low carb women have lowered their fat and focused on protein and then ended up missing periods. So they eat carbs again. Should women eat more fat than men when they're doing low carb? It's kind of a two part um, question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think sometimes, I think Carly was talking about this a little bit. Sometimes when the body can get into a starvational state, if you have uh, quite a bit of starvational ketosis, uh, then the body starts to want to preserve, especially if the fat levels get too low. I know that sometimes the leptin levels uh, uh, can get quite low and then that can uh, affect a person's fertility, uh, especially, you know, you see that in anorexic patients. I don't have an experience seeing it in a lot of uh, low carbohydrate patients, but I think if you eat the calories that you need to keep yourself uh, healthy and not starving, uh, then, then typically I think people do pretty well in my experience. I don't know if you guys have other thoughts about that. Yeah. And I would just say um, if, if eating more protein and eating less fat makes you lose your period, that's a good sign that you are less healthy in a sense. Um, because a period is a really good sign of health and reproductive health. So if that's the case and you're trying to be productive, then probably add more fat. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well said. From Tanya, have you noticed that women with PCOS need to wash their hair more frequently because of a greasy scalp? Nobody's told me that, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, I just, I, I haven't heard that. But I, but some people don't tell their doctor those things, and yeah. I wish they would. Carly, have you ever heard? Steve, yeah. Steve, would it? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't I'm, know. I'm sorry. I wondered if there's any um, uh, scientific val validity to that. I wonder if we do know that with in PCOS with the high androgens, the high testosterone, that the skin can be more oily. Is is that right? I think, yeah, it, with high testosterone, there can be higher sweat. You can get, sometimes people can get more male pattern baldness and hair growth in particular around the but chin. But also acne and acne, is, is acne, that true? Absolutely, yes, yeah. Uh, I hear about those much more often and, and perhaps high testosterone gets to that acne by causing m more oils potentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know the process of that, but it very well could be. Uh, if we can treat PCOS better, then maybe that oil gets 
I would assume it would get a little bit better with lower androgens. Okay. Uh, from Eleonora, can stress or trauma, PTSD or CPTDS, cause the development of PCOS? That's, that's a great question. Uh, uh, stress and chronic uh, corticosteroid secretion, which uh, is, is something that your body reacts to cause stress causes you to have more steroids. And Ben might be able to explain this more eloquently than me, but that can chronically raise your blood sugar, which can then send you down that path potentially. Uh, so I would say, yes, I don't know if Ben has a better explanation. Well, no, well, I have just additional perspective. Uh, we do know that in, in stress um, adaptation syndrome or general adaptation syndrome, which is the big word for stress, and that's something we've spoken about in a previous metabolic classroom, but there's, is, there's what's called the stage of exhaustion, which is when basically cortisol levels have been up for an extended period of time. And independent of what cortisol does on insulin, which is considerable, and that would certainly make a connection to PCOS, but, but cortisol directly um, inhibits the release of sex hormones in men and women. And that's why the stress, the, the high stress, the high cortisol causes um, reduced libido and infertility in men because it's directly um, kind of attacking the production of androgens, but the same thing is going um, in women. So I do know that cortisol has a direct inhibitory effect on sex hormone production. And clinically, I, I, we have a lot of patients that are just in the battle of fertility. And then uh, they try, try, try unsuccessful, unsuccessful. And then they say, Okay, I'm taking a break. And then they get pregnant. And I, I think stress has something to do with that. Uh, for sure. And, and whether that's cortisol or some other process that I don't know about, but I know clinically that that happens a lot. Okay. And and once again, on a, on a more, we're made so wisely, you know, this is not scientific, but wouldn't it make sense that we shouldn't be having babies if we're under chronic stress, our yeah. bodies, <laughs> you know, are going to shut down on some level. Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, from yeah, no, Carly, I love that you mentioned that. That's something I really harp on, that it is kind of the body's way of sampling the environment. And essentially, it's testing the water and the, and the potential fetus that might be is kind of saying, oh, wait, this is hostile. This is a hostile environment. I, I, you know, the, and, and so the, the, the woman's body, who appears to be more sensitive to these things than a fellow, and why not? Because she's the one who's bearing the metabolic burden and, and the physical, physical tangible um, burden of this fetus. Um, yeah, it makes sense that her body would be a little more responsive. And so if things are awry, and stress would certainly be one body's, it'd be like, that'd be, stress would be like the, the, the thermometer or the, the, the thermo, yeah, the thermometer gauging the environment and she's exposed, she's in the environment, stress is her response to the environment. And then stress is the signal that's telling the body, Hey, look, this is not compatible with bringing a baby. Yeah. And isn't that fascinating that fertility seems to be coming, becoming more and more of an issue for men and women. To me, that kind of should make you wonder what's the state of this place we we call earth, we call you know, <laughs> yeah. if we're, we're becoming incapable of, of reproducing on such a mass scale, yeah. you know, interesting it means we're as a, as a society, we need to get more healthy. Yeah. It yeah. Does. Yep. Uh, from Colleen, 
do postmenopausal women still have a monthly hormonal cycle, which then can elicit breakouts or cravings? Uh, the definition of menopause is not having cycles, actually. So uh, definition of menopause is no uh, period for over a year uh, due to hormonal causes. And so uh, the interesting thing, there is something called perimenopause, which is that time frame right before menopause where hormones are going a little haywire, where they're kind of way up high and way down low. And sometimes someone thinks they're in menopause and then they'll sneak in a period here or there. And sometimes there can be uh, reasons for postmenopausal bleeding as well that, that aren't always ovulatory reasons or, or necessarily periods, but whether that's a polyp or a fibroid or endometrial cancer or things like that. And so that's something that we take very seriously in my profession work up. Uh, typically, it's not a resumption of periods, but some other pathologic cause. Uh, from, from Temple, what's the science behind having moderate or higher carbs during certain phases of the menstrual cycle? Uh, Pseudoscience, I, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Temple, bless your heart. I, 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 there's, there's certainly no study on that. Yeah. Right, Steve? I'm Steve I, or, or Richard, Carl, have you guys seen any substantiated no, evidence? And on a different level, that brings the question up. Do you have more insulin resistance at certain times of your cycle? Are you, are you more insulin resistant? And my guess would be we haven't cared to look at that yeah. in science. <laughs> right, right. Um, from, from Sarah, is it, un, is it usual to get kicked out of ketosis when menstruating despite no dietary change? Not, not in my experience. Uh, now, there could be some low-level uh, function of uh, hormones, that LH, FSH, progesterone, estrogen kind of milieu that's in there that has an effect, but I don't, I don't know of it. Uh, clinically, not, uh, not something that I uh, have studied or know much about. Okay. Hey, Jack, I got yeah, a question. And we don't see that typically. Okay. No. Yeah, Jack, I, I have a question for Steve and Ben. I, I probably shouldn't go down this rabbit hole, but I'm going to. And if you don't want to answer, don't. Jack just took in a, took in a quick mute breath. Mute me, mute me, mute me. Um, we, we have, I've seen this. I've done this for 10 years, Steve, and I've coached people for 10 years. And I've coached uh, not, not a lot, but a handful of, of women that want to do a instant controlled, so-called low-carb, eating pattern after the PCOS is, is basically, I mean, they, they came in with PCOS, they get pregnant on the low carb diet. They want to continue that eating pattern through the pregnancy and after the pregnancy, there seems to be a lot of pushback with that, even though from what Ben has said that the women tend to be more in ketosis anyways, and the baby isn't ketosis for the most part when he's born. Why is there so much fear around, um, this, that don't go into ketosis. It's bad. It's dangerous. Is it, this, is, is it just that they don't want to try anything new for pregnancy or women are scared to do that? What's that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And, and the answer is that I think the scientific community in general is still learning and accepting uh, low carbohydrate as a really valid solution uh, to these things. Now, pregnancy is, is tricky. One reason is that it's hard to do 
science on pregnant women. They're a protected population. And so we don't have phenomenal studies on pregnant women uh, because we want to protect them and we don't want to be doing studies first on them. We'll do them on people that aren't pregnant first and then do them on pregnant people as, as we go. Now, could women survive pregnancy in ketosis? Assuredly, yes. I mean, if you evolutionarily, if you think about it, of, of course we can. Or you talk to any woman that's had hyperemesis, which is just the most severe nausea and vomiting you can have in that first trimester of pregnancy. Assuredly, they're in ketosis and they're doing okay and their baby's okay. It's, it's a question of, is that the most efficient way to do it? And, um, and I think, yes, and pregnancy, maybe we can have another one of these talking about pregnancy, because that's a big topic, uh, a lot of which we don't have research for, but uh, hyper uh, high insulin and insulin resistance is not irrelevant in pregnancy, even outside the realm of gestational diabetes. It's clinically very significant for our patients and babies, uh, including, you know, risk of shoulder dystocias and babies getting stuck because they've grown so big because of high sugars and things like that. It's, it's actually extremely relevant. And so I do recommend patients go on lower carbohydrate diets. I don't, uh, I don't tell people to go full ketosis. I don't tell people to do uh, in, uh, fasting, intermittent fasting quite as much during pregnancy. And I don't have data to say one way or another not to. That's just where we are as a scientific community at this moment. Could that change? Absolutely. I, I, we could totally be doing it wrong. But I, I say eat some carbs, but eat less. Eat no, cocoa puffs, as Dr. Barry <laughs> likes to say, it will not help your pregnancy at all. That's not going to help anything. Um, and so I think the principles remain the same. Maybe the exact strictness to it, I might relax a little bit during pregnancy and also lactation. So, well, uh, Steve, it's, it's interesting as the clients go through this process and I'm with them, you know, uh, one of the big struggles is, man, when they have cravings, they do not want to, they're not craving an avocado. Yeah. yeah they're craving ice cream and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't tell them, no, I'm like, you, you what you want. You're pregnant. <laughs> hey, Steve, what, what, so this is related a little bit. We have so many clients that have uh, gestational diabetes and they're told by their doctor to eat, you know, like a dozen small high carb meals a day, like which just keeps their insulin elevated all the time. Why, what's the thinking behind that from a doctor's perspective? Well, it's also, it's not just pregnant moms, it's, it's diabetics in general. Uh, they don't want your blood sugar to get too low, particularly, especially if someone's on insulin or something like that. Uh, but I think the understanding and acceptance of insulin resistance and lowering that insulin, I think that's getting there. There are some really phenomenal studies that Ben always talks about. Uh, I think we're catching up. And I think doctors have been kind of taught differently from the beginning. And the dogma is, is a bit off in, in that sense. Uh, and uh, I think more, the more evidence that comes out, the more likely uh, that will become a, a, a generally accepted process of using the diet to, to control these things more than, than medicines. I think in general, also physicians aren't always confident patients will actually do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's part of the issue as well is uh, that sometimes it's hard. I mean, it is hard. It's very hard, especially to keep it going. Uh, but I think 
not believing in your patients is, is not always the best approach either. Cause yeah. I, I think people can do it. I don't know if that answered your question. Good answer, yes. And I think, I think you pinpointed it on a large degree, which is doc, it's scary to work with somebody who you're thinking might have these lows when they get started. Like when a type one diabetic comes to us, it's a little scary to work with them, to be honest. And so it's easier for a doctor who only has, you know, 10 or 20 minutes to, to be educating this patient to say, just keep it elevated. You'll stay out of the scary zone if you do, you know? Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, that does. Well, uh, let's take one more question from Christy. Uh, she's turning from uh, women's pre- reproductive health to men's reproductive health with this question. Yeah, we got that, guys. There we go. From, <laughs> and from Christy, my husband recently found out he has low sperm count and low mobility. He's working on getting healthier and is eating lower carb. Can eating lower carb help him? Um, I, you know, I specialize in women's health, but also we, we do a lot of fertility. I know that uh, the decrease in fat in men, we talked about sometimes that testosterone uh, can get converted over through aromatase into estrogen. In fat cells, that aromatase uh, enzyme exists. And the more fat cells you have, the more testosterone goes towards estrogen, uh, which can be why people that are obese can have uh, some more female features like some breasts that start to bud or things like that. And, and so uh, that can inhibit the testosterone a little bit and can make an effect. There can also be a lot of other reasons. So I can't speak to his situation exactly. I think improving your hormonal health can better your chances completely. But there can also be other pathologic reasons why something like that would happen that we'd want you to follow with the doctor with and, and, and really follow that specific situation uniquely. But as the general rule, I think men in general can improve testosterone fertility through diet. Ben probably has some better opinions. Yeah, Ben, about. we did a metabolic classroom, Ben, about uh, this topic a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. So in fact, Steve, I love that you pointed out fat. There, there is a study in men showing that as men went on lower fat diets, they had lower sperm count and lower sperm motility. So it is possible that by eating too little fat, and they, these authors couldn't elaborate on a mechanism, and I'm having a hard time speculating on the direct mechanism, but they did find the men that shifted over to a lower fat, more plant-based diet, that's what was given, that was the prescription for the study, they had lower sperm count, lower motility. So Carly speaking about how the body's responding to the environment, it certainly defends the view that humans are omnivores. That's low hanging fruit right there. But I don't know of a direct mechanism for insulin to impact sperm production and motility. There probably is one. Most of the discussion around insulin resistance and fertility in men has to do with what the insulin resistance is doing at the blood vessels and compromising blood flow resulting in erectile dysfunction, which again is not what she's mentioning. So I'm unaware of a direct insulin effect, but it wouldn't surprise me if there is one. Thank you for listening to The Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious Meal Replacement Shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.